0: Welcome all of you to this special event with Nurul Islam, reflections from 60 plus years of development. We are very honored to have this conversation together with Nurul and we warmly thank him for giving us this opportunity. Thank you for those of you who are joining us here in person, to those of you who are joining us online for this event, and to those of you who will be watching this recording after the event. Let me briefly introduce our speaker for today. Nurul is very well known to all of us here at IFPRI. He served as the founding member of IFPRI's board of trustees, serving for more than 10 years from 1975 to 1986. Subsequently, he served as senior research advisor beginning in 1987, and then he was appointed by the board as research fellow emeritus in 1994. He has mentored many IFPRI staff and countless development officials and professionals around the world through the years. He has challenged us all to think, to rethink, and to even further rethink. He has encouraged us to be brave, to be bold, and to push the frontiers of knowledge and put knowledge to work. I have been very fortunate to work with Neural from the very beginning of my time at IFPRI, uh, that is, for more than 30 years. His guidance and his wisdom, his constant um, encouragement has been an inspiration to me and I'm sure to many of you in this room and around the world. If I were to introduce Neural more fully, right there one hour would go by. But instead, I'm going to save the time to have this conversation with him. And again, Neural, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to share with us your reflections. You and I briefly talked. And as I mentioned, your career has ranged from university teaching, to research, to heading a prestigious research institution, to becoming a freedom fighter, to running the first planning commission in Bangladesh, to serving as assistant director general at FAO, and then as a researcher. This is an enduring legacy. In these 60 plus years, what did you enjoy the most?
1: Thank you very much for <coughs> introduction. Well, <coughs> in all these years, I've said, I will say I will enjoy most of the teaching and research. <coughs> and uh, go- job in the government planning commission was interesting but very challenging.
0: Well, the- Neural, no, you can't stop there. Uh-huh. And Then I'm going to ask you, why did you enjoy research and teaching? And be warned, I'm going to come back and ask you about interesting and challenging.
1: Well, uh, I suppose I was temperamentally <coughs> very attracted to teaching and research, partly because I'm <coughs> sorry, I loved interacting with the young, mans, young minds in my classrooms. They taught me and I taught them. It was a mutual interchange. And I expanded my knowledge by reacting to their questions, went home and studied, and come back to them. So that was a very interesting, a very enjoyable experience for me. Now, as far as the government was concerned, that was a challenge for a researcher as a teacher to go and work in the government it's a challenge some of you might have faced, but it was for me very unusual. And the challenge was twofold. How do you communicate with non-economists, politicians, and administrators? How do you translate your economic jargons, your economic concepts into language they understand, which is radically different from yours? So when I have to advise them on policy issues, secondly, I have to realize not only I have to communicate with them, which is extremely difficult for an academic. It takes time to learn. Secondly, to understand their perceptions of their own job and their own responsibilities. So if you recommend a policy to them, you have to understand the political feasibility of that policy. Otherwise, the advice is useless. And they pay no attention to what you say. But these are two challenges of anyone, any academic or researchers who work with the policymaker. In my experience, I found it. Even in international organizations, there the top bosses didn't have a clue of what I was talking about. You have to communicate them in their language. Now, while in the government, the politics, I can give you examples if you want to. The two challenges I faced are just illustrating the two examples of giving advice whether it is politically feasible or not. First example you will understand subsidies on inputs. We have been talking about subsidies and inputs since I was a student and you have been all your life. It's very bad. It is inefficient, inequitable. We all agree on that. Politicians don't agree with that at all. So how do you convince them, if at all, if you succeed? In my case, we have a problem. We started with very high subsidies in fertilizer. And we saw that it was standard argument. We used, among also we discussed this among the economists and the planning commission. But when I go to the boss to explain to him, I have to use his language. So I said, uh, you see, it is all right fertilizer subsidy, but then we have other resor- other demands on our resources. You know, the first it is fertilizer subsidy costs 100, but we have demands for irrigation, for marketing, for technical assistance, all the rest of it. So, my, I don't know how do you manage all this. So I was wondering whether it's not at this stage considerable. Considering what, considering whether we should not shift, let's say about from 75% subsidy to make it 50, and transfer to other cities, because we found that in increasing agricultural output, uh, extension services, marketing services, and research, etc., for um, uh, improved seeds are also very important. They say yes, you are right, important. But then, if you reduce subsidy or eliminate it. There will be fall in food supply, our farmers will suffer. too far, because the party in power was a middle class party for I mean, the middle, politicians, middle class background and most of the farmers, are mid, middle farmers, they are their constituency. So if you say eliminate subsidy or reduce them substantially it will not go well with their constituency. So what do you do with them? Well, can you somehow convince them that this is not uh, as important because you have other demands? Go to your farmers, explain to them, what about extension service? Don't you want it? I mean, if I reduce subsidy, I'll have more money for extension workers to you. Well, they'll say, yes, possibly. But this one is more tangible. That was, we don't really know extension, et cetera, research. But it's tangible. we know. Our cost reduces, we make profit. So it was a hard struggle to convince them. And they were worried that if you suddenly reduce subsidy, output will fall. Not only farmers will suffer, but the rest of the population will suffer. We argued no, uh, for, to do null forbes, we have made the studies. He said, no, 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 that's not the way. We go to the villages, they tell us, yes, there's a serious problem. It went on for months about four months then eventually cabinet decided well let's do something 75% or maybe make it 50% i said all right let's agree then it was supposed to be announced within a week and the night before i received a telephone call from my boss saying that no 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 stop announcement it cannot be like that i had a meeting of my parliamentary party they said out of the question they revolted. So what do you do? Well, not 50, make it, make it 65. I said, OK. But not announce now, wait about 10 days. I have to negotiate with them again. So I'm giving you flavor. It's not that simple. Proving inefficient, inequitable doesn't go anywhere. They don't understand the language. Anymore. Second question, second example, also interesting, food distribution. In the initial stages, we had rationing. So, the industrial workers and low income government workers were given fixed rations so much just food, rice and wheat, per month, per day, etc. So, they're protected from any fall in supply, reduction in consumption. So, we said, You see, it's true, but can we do something else? What is it? Because, you see, in the distribution of rice and wheat to the farmers, I mean, to the consumers, the leakage, you know what leakage means, they divert, they sell elsewhere, and sometimes it is given to non-target groups. You want industrial workers, somebody else gets it. Because the dealers, I could not watch all of them all the time. So, leakage and non-target groups get it, so, why don't you substitute by another one, another process of giving them relief? We say that the wages will be indexed to the inflation. So if your price goes up, the wages will go up. So your real wages remain constant and you will not suffer in terms of food supply. The minister said, yes, that seems to be reasonable, not bad. I said, you save money and will be directed to what you exactly want industrial workers not to suffer, to get the amount of rice that you want them to get. They say, yes, give us time. We have to negotiate our industrial workers. Very powerful training at this stage, very powerful. Politically powerful, they were very influential in the freedom movement. So they said, yes, come back after a week. I went back, he says, no, it will not go. Why? We argued with them for three days, they said nothing doing. (laughs) Three arguments. One, what is those indexing business? We don't understand all this. You mean price goes up, our wages goes up. Well, we are not quite sure I can explain. The leader of the trade union said to my workers, This is too complicated. We understand one pound of rice, but we don't understand all this. So, second, he said, Well, what is the guarantee that all the industrial employees will carry it out? Suppose somebody doesn't do it. Then you have to go on a strike and negotiate with him. This is too much. We do- waste of time, you order know, to fight with him. Third, how do we know that your next government will continue to do it or go back on it? No way, we cannot do it. So I did not succeed, it was continued. So these, some of the very, very crude facts of policy making in which economies can be useful or not can totally un- useless.
0: Nurul, this is fascinating. You're giving us, and I can see people nodding their heads around, I'm pretty sure we'll come back to this. But you're raising key issues of communication, of persuasion, of trust, and so forth. But I'm looking at the time, and I do want to go back to to more. So I, I, I don't know how many of our audience knows that you were one of the very first Bangladeshis or East Pakistanis in those days to attend Harvard. And I was very intrigued, and I want to ask you, what motivated you to go to Harvard? What motivated you to go for further education? And you told me something very interesting, which I hope you'll talk about, the power of curiosity.
1: Well, when I graduated from the university, and I got a scholarship to go abroad, then I didn't know where to go. So I went to two libraries, USIS and British Council, looked at the literature saying, what are these universities abroad? I figured, after some research, I found there are two universities, in America, Harvard, in England, Cambridge University. Well, I said, let's apply to both. And I got admitted to both. Then I decided to choose Harvard, for reasons we don't want to go into it anyway, that was the choice.
0: <laughs> Lunchtime.
1: If you want to discuss I can.: No no, we will, we will.
0: We have many more questions for you. <laughs> it will take time. So. so You ended up I, at: Harvard. I was
1: one of the in my time, when I went to Harvard in, 19, most of you were not born at this stage, in 1951. And there we had four students from South Asia. One Pakistani, at that stage I was a Pakistani, and three Indians. One was eventually became director of, vice, uh, director of IMF research division. Another was, became in the World Bank or something else, I don't remember exactly. He was more mathematical type. And the third one came for two years, didn't finish his PhD, was eventually. The economic secretary to Prime Minister of India Indira Gandhi, PN Dorr. So we have four of us and a few others, one or two from the Philippines and overwhelmingly all of them, United States and Canada and some from England.
0: You enjoyed it. I'm going to move us on though. So you were at Harvard, 60-plus years of development as we talked about it. And you know that I can't resist asking you three questions, but I'll do them one by one. You've seen a lot of change happen. Do you think we have solved major problems in these 60-plus years that you have been engaged? And what problems continue to obsess you, that you continue to worry about? And then what issues do you feel we don't do sufficient research on? Take them in any order you want, or even one of them.
1: I will start very differently. I will say, do we know what causes economic growth? And you may be interested to know, there was a commission on growth, appointed the World Bank for three years, headed by a Nobel laureate, came out of the report. This was after the three-grade reports, East Asian Miracle about rate performance, other countries follow them. So the Growth Commission report came out after two years of deliberation, and the following I thought they will be interested in this, and the following findings that there is no generic formula for development and growth. Two, each country has to decide its own way of growth and policies, keeping in mind one, historical circumstances through, its own characteristics. I'm quoting. Then it comes around, there are five areas in which we would ask the countries to concentrate in order to promote growth. One, (coughs) commitment of, credible commitment of the leadership to development. I don't know what it means but that's why I'm quoting it. (laughs) Second, Uh, macroeconomic stability. Third, high rate of saving and investment, including investment, infrastructure, education and health. Very strange. Use, mostly use prices, word, mostly use prices for research allocation. Very interesting. So each one of them can be broken down into 500 sub-requirements. Sub so this is what, after three years of deliberation, the Nobel laureates, two of them Nobel laureates came out with. Now, what to make of it is very difficult. I haven't commemorated the whole report, but this is what the recommendations are. Now, there was a meeting like this, in which this report was debated in, Washington, in World Bank and the invitees were world from as economists. One of them was again Robert Solo from MIT Nobel laureate. He summarized it, which is beautiful, I think, for all of us. He said, you know, gentlemen, after hearing the deliberations, reading the report, this is my two sentence conclusion. We know the various ingredients what promote truth, but we do not know the recipe. So to answer your question, it's very difficult. Now, what does it mean? We know the ingredients, we don't have a recipe. In other words, we don't know the sequencing. We don't know the relative importance of each one of them. We don't know how to mix them. So there's a state of knowledge as of four years ago in the state of development. Now, coming back to your other deleted questions, What are the areas in which we have not done still grouping to find answer such as what causes structural reasons, inequality and consequences of inequality, what do we do about it? Secondly, we don't have much idea as yet the relationship between poverty and growth I refer to you the first World Bank Development Report, Our Fisher was the vice, vice President. The first sentence says, I do not know what causes growth, neither do what causes decline in poverty. This is a work in progress, we must try to understand this fully. Now. These are the areas still remain, even though we do all the time research on all this, but they are unexplored issues. We hear about shared prosperity. What is exactly what it is? Right? Poverty becomes shared prosperity. So you ask me.
0: What do you obsess about? Pardon? What do you obsess about?
1: Obsess about?
0: Uh, Obsess, you're worried about.
1: My obsession? No, I suppose basically, At present, I'm very worried about the, how would I say, development and democracy. This is an issue in my country, often broadly debated and discussed. Governance and democracy, uh, development, including corruption. Economics of all of these policy issues, very serious. I suppose roughly that it
0: is. I know there will be a chance to have a conversation, and I'm sure people will share their thoughts on your reflections. But let me come back for just five minutes and then we'll open up. You know, sitting here at IFPRI Neural, I cannot resist asking you this question, so apologies in advance. You have served on IFPRI's first board more than 40 years ago. You were there right at the creation of IFPRI. 45 years later, have we met your expectations? Are we playing the role you envisioned we would play when you were on the founding board? Any words of wisdom for us?
1: And the institute has changed radically during my from during this whole year from my time to now. When I was staff member and before that board member, we had a huge amount of on a touch grant money from the donors. The major donors at the stage was Ford Foundation, Canadian IDRC, and then Rockefeller Foundation, and eventually all the governments come along. And the money was given to the board and the institute saying that you decided to discharge priorities. Uh, we don't mind, provided the board approves it. So we had complete freedom. The Director General and staff members sat together and decided research priorities. And the board discussed again very intensively, all of those. And some rejected, some approved. That was the research program. Over time, it started changing gradually. Now, as you know, all you have known, that things are radically different. Now, donors do decide largely the countries and the projects they should undertake. Of course, we are not totally helpless. We can manage with them, argue with them, convince them. Scope is there. But the freedom has been reduced. So that makes that we are, if you compare the research program of today and research program of 20 years ago, they're radically different. These are very micro, most of the projects, I think I may be wrong, you'd be better able to tell me, micro projects, very few m- macro projects. For example, in our times, you'd work on a. Com- cross-country studies of price stabilization measures. I have written a small monograph on that. We'll discuss basic, for example, trade policy. The trade policy, macroeconomic modeling, the effect. In fact, I remember uh, we had a great argument in the board as to what will will undertake a study of the European agricultural economic policy and compared to the American food policy. And that's a huge opposition from the European members saying that this is too political. So, I was a member, board member, I said, oh really? We are supposed to do anything, and non- we are non-political. What do you mean political? Economic issues have political implications. Myself and a, one board member from Latin America, we fought and won the game. It was studied by IFRI. So, I'm saying that things have changed, but still we can make Use of whatever available, and I think it's all right, accepting that I feel that a little bit could be better if you could persuade the donors to give us a little more freedom.
0: It's a very diplomatic response, Neural. <laughs> <laughs>